This week, Hertz and ABS lenders spar over lease payments, Macy's conducts internal reorganization, capital structure fix, JCPenney receives alternative dip proposal. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Mark Fisher. And I'm Raksha Manjanan. Later, legal analysts Karen Lung and Alex Brosman discuss recent trends in bankruptcy filings. It's Sunday, May 31st. Following the Hertz Corporation's Chapter 11 filing last week, Debtors' Council appearing at the first day hearing stated the company is looking to further reduce its 730,000 vehicle fleet and that canceling new orders and returning vehicles has been one of its first priorities. Creditor parties raised concerns with forthcoming issues, mainly arising from complications in Hertz's corporate and capital structures, and particularly the master vehicle operating lease through which the debtors lease their U.S. rental car fleet. Base rents amount to about $300 million per month, said Debtors' Council. In addition, Hertz's operating subsidiaries are, are subject to financing charges and depreciation true-ups based on resale values in the used car market, which has significantly weakened. The mark-to-market component totaled $135 million in April alone, according to uh, Tom Loria De- Debtors' Council, adding that the amount is anticipated to increase. Objectives, according to the debtors, for the next 60 days of the case include right-sizing the, via- the fleet, and observe that Bankruptcy Code Section 3625D5 provides a 60-day breathing spell before the debtors must make timely payments on leases of personal property such as the operating lease. Hertz said it is likely to seek relief from the court under the equities of the case doctrine in order to avoid making the full amount of payments that would otherwise be due and would seek to reach consensus with ABS holders on realistic liquidity requirements. The equities of the case comment was a reference to the exception from Bankruptcy Code Section 365D5's general rule that a debtor shall timely perform all of the obligations under an unexpired lease of, of personal property until such lease is assumed or rejected. Quote, unless the court, after notice and a hearing, I am based on the equities of the case, orders otherwise with respect to the obligations or timely performance thereof. In a statement prior to the hearing by Deutsche Bank in its capacity as administrative agent for the series 2013A variable funding notes under the HVF2 ABS program, says that if Hertz does not make payments to HVF2 ABS note holders, including both VFNs and medium-term notes, for the first 60 days of the case, the VFN note holders estimate that the additional shortfall with respect to the May and June rent payments may be in excess of $670 million, including the skipped April 27th payment with respect to HVF2 ABS notes. Deutsche Bank says that over a three-month period, quote, the HVF2 ABS note holders will not have received well over $1 billion owed to them by Hertz, the majority of which represents diminution in value of the rental fleet due to the market depreciation, damages, and auto theft. Macy's, which last week estimated that sales fell 45% in the first quarter and disclosed that it is seeking additional financing to improve its flexibility as it reopens stores shuttered by the COVID-19 pandemic, on Tuesday announced a $1.1 billion offering of five-year senior secured notes and a new asset-backed credit agreement that will provide a revolving credit facility including a swing line sub-facility and a letter of credit sub-facility and a bridge revolving credit facility of up to $300 million. 
Macy's anticipates that it'll have approximately $3 billion of revolving credit commitments, taking into account commitments under the ABL credit facility and the revised availability under the revolver. The revolving ABL facility is expected to have an accordion feature that will enable the ABL borrower to request increases in the size of facility up to an additional aggregate principal amount of $750 million. The facility will be secured on a first priority basis by all assets of the ABL borrower, including all such inventory and the proceeds thereof and the common equity of the ABL borrower, and will pay interest at LIBOR plus 2.25% to 3%. The senior secured notes offering was upsized by $1.3 billion and priced on Wednesday with a coupon of 8.375%. To facilitate the transactions, the company also announced a corporate reorganization that contemplates the formation of a new PropCo entity into which will be transferred its Fulton Street, Brooklyn, Union Square, San Francisco, and State Street, Chicago stores, 35 stores located in selected malls, and 10 distribution centers with an estimated asset value of approximately $2.2 billion. The newly formed inventory subsidiary would, prior to or concurrent with closing, purchase all presently owned existing inventory of Macy's retail holdings and certain subsidiaries and assume the liabilities of all presently owned existing and outstanding trade payables. The ABL borrower will consign all of its inventory to the operating companies for sale and will pay the operating companies a consignment commission for the sale of consigned inventory and for operating expenses incurred related to the consigned inventory, in accordance with the master agency consignment and servicing agreement. The company said as of May 22nd, it had greater than $1.5 billion of cash, and when combined with the new secured note offering and new expected $3 billion committed asset-based credit agreements, would result in, quote, sufficient liquidity to resolve its accrued payable obligations, which has not been renegotiated, fund operations, and retire the company's debt maturities through fiscal 2021. At a status conference on Thursday, counsel to the JCPenney debtors disclosed that an ad hoc crossholder group recently submitted an alternative dip financing proposal, which is the subject of ongoing good faith negotiations between the ad hoc group and the debtors. According to counsel, the debtors hope that the dip negotiations will result in a dip provided by the entire group of first lien lenders. Counsel highlighted the ad hoc uh, crossholder group's alternative dip proposal, quote, came with no roll up of the existing term loans, would provide additional incremental liquidity on the first draw, would feature a lower interest rate than the existing dip by 100 basis points, would include no upfront or commitment fees, and would provide some limited relief on the milestones, which are all still in negotiation. The milestones under the existing dip proposal, which is scheduled for a hearing on June 2nd, would require the debtors and the required lenders, uh, consenting first lien lenders, to agree on our business plan by July 14th, which counsel described as the bullseye mines milestone. The milestones would also require a disclosure statement or bidding procedure motion to be filed by August 13th. A presentation slide displayed during the hearing summarized the terms under the existing dip proposal and the ad hoc crossholder group's proposal dated May 25th. As previewed at the status conference, debtors filed a motion Thursday, also even evening, seeking an extension under Bankruptcy Code 365-D3 of the time to pay June and July lease obligations of approximately $34 million through and including July 14th. 
The devs further request to stay until July 14th. Any and all actions in the Chapter 11 cases seeking to lift the automatic stay compel performance under any lease or compel assumption or assignment of any lease. The debtors stated that they have commenced discussions with landlords regarding a COVID recovery ask, including rent abatements, among other things. The debtors are being assisted by B. Riley Real Estate LLC, according to the filing. On the island of Puerto Rico, the PROMISA Oversight Board certified a new fiscal plan for the Commonwealth Government that projects an $8 billion surplus available for debt service between 2020 and 2032, down 65% from the $23 billion surplus projected during the time frame under the previous plan that was certified in May 2019. The new fiscal plan also projects that the Commonwealth Government will return to budget deficits in fiscal 2032, six years earlier than the current fiscal plan projects, and also factors in the economic and fiscal impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and other recent events, such as an increase in Medicaid funding and slower-than-expected rollout of federal disaster funding. Oversight Board Executive Director Natalie Jurasco and Oversight Board members acknowledged the severe impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and recent natural disasters on Puerto Rico's economy and public finances, but did not directly address how the new economic projections would impact the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment. The Oversight Board officials championed the Plan of Adjustment proposal as an important milestone in Puerto Rico's efforts to exit bankruptcy and said the fiscal plan would be used to determine next steps in the process in discussions between the Oversight Board, the Commonwealth, creditors and court-appointed members. Jurasco also said that an important announcement is expected later this summer on the planned concession of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's grid. And officials said that the Oversight Board is expanding its oversight of the Commonwealth's contracting processes. During the meeting, Oversight Board members concurred that progress has been made on making the Commonwealth government more affordable and eliminating past deficit spending, but they said Commonwealth officials still lack the political will to enact sweeping reforms and fiscal adjustments that would transform government and spur economic growth. Other top stories this past week were LATAM Airlines files with $900 million dip financing from shareholders, $1.3 billion cash on hand at filing, Docket now available in New York. J. Crew obtained 60-day rent deferral as courts find effects of COVID-19 pandemic. Warrant relief despite nationwide easing of restrictions, resumption of operations at hundreds of locations in near term. And Intelsat, ICF, Envision, Luxco, bondholders regroup, organize alongside Appaloosa with Paul Weiss to Sarah. Now here is Jim Holloway from Houston with the week ahead. Well, thanks, Raksha. Hello, everyone. And the times sure are interesting, are they not, if I may paraphrase the Poet Laureate of Minnesota? Anyways, I'm going to limit myself to that. Let's look at what the coming week has in store for us. Monday, June 1st, SM Energy has a coupon due on its 2025s. Valeris, formerly Insco, has a coupon due on its Rowan Seniors due 2042. And, you know, when you think about it, the entire idea of 2042, or 2025 for that matter, is about the most Pollyanna-ish thing imaginable. And before I forget, on May 31st, that being the day before June 1st, Fieldwood Energy here in Houston reaches the expiration of a forbearance and it's also the outside date for their chapter 11 filing 
And also on June 1st, down at the courthouse, there's hearings in Whiting and Foresight and a confirmation hearing in the cases of my favorite utility, PG&E. Tuesday, June 2nd, dip hearings in J.C. Penney. Second day hearing in Neiman Marcus. Sure was interesting doings in the courthouse. Judge Jones on Friday should have been on C-SPAN, don't you think? Anyways, Wednesday, June 3rd. Clients, get your checkbooks ready because there's a whole lot of legal going on with a whole fleet of omnibuses, including Purdue, P-E-S, PG&E again. Welcome back. Verity, Zohar, and Whiting Petroleum. Thursday, June 4th, final dip hearing in J. Crew. A motion to compelled hearing in Bumblebee and a couple Puerto Rico related matters including a revenue bond lift stay preliminary hearing and an equal protection act summary judgment hearing there's also earnings from Hovnani and the home builder Friday June 5th hearings in Altamesa and Borden and of course I'm just scratching the surface of what's ahead for more please see our weekly forward released bright and early on Monday mornings and now filled to me the parting glass in the words of Shane McGowan and Tommy Makem and over to my friend and colleague Karen and Alex up there in the Northern Lands for a review of May's Chapter 11 cases. Hey friends, it's Karen from the Legal Analyst Team. Well, it's been an unusual month for America's core credit coverage at Reorg as we work alone together during the COVID-19 pandemic. And a big reason for that has been the uptick in new large Chapter 11 cases. The America's core credit team has covered about 14 of them in May, and the month isn't even over yet. A new large chapter 11 on average every other day is unusual for us. By the way, there's some data from our colleagues at Reorg First Day that bears this out. Reorg First Day tracks chapter 11 cases across the country with more than $10 million in liabilities. And they recently took a look at cases with more than $100 million in liabilities. They found that cases in this category have been on the rise since last year. There were 23 cases with a $100 million plus debt load that filed this May, a new record. That's 44% above the previous monthly record in the time that First Day has been operating. So we have a striking number of companies with large debt loads knocking on the courthouse door, virtually speaking, because they've decided that they need to access the range of tools that Chapter 11 provides. From the uh, media perspective of just covering these cases, I think we have to be humble about the novelty of the situation, but there are signposts, deadlines, and milestones that do provide a kind of skeleton for a Chapter 11 case and those significant events from May 2020 are the focus of today's podcast segment. We'll do a rapid fire rundown of most of those 14 or so new large Chapter 11 cases, focusing on key details, dates, and disputes that have caught the spotlight so far. First, let's take a look at the cluster of new large Chapter 11s this month in the retail industry. J. Crew, Neiman Marcus, JCPenney, and Centric Brands. In the first full week of May, luxury retailer Neiman Marcus filed in the Southern District of Texas and J. Crew in the Eastern District of Virginia. Now, J. Crew filed for bankruptcy with a transaction support agreement that's now supported by 96% of term loan lenders, 
95% of the company's IP code note holders, 83% of Series A preferred shares, and 89% of common shares, according to an announcement in court this past week on May 26th. At the first day hearing earlier in the case, Judge Keith Phillips granted the first day motions and authorized the debtors to access $100 million, $110 million on an interim basis of the $400 million dip financing package. The judge granted the debtors dip over the objections raised by the U.S. trustee and Eaton Vance, um, a pre-petition term lender that didn't participate in dip negotiations. The J. Crew debtors then went on to file a plan and disclosure statement in line with the TSA in the middle of the month, meeting that milestone under the TSA. A few days ago, the bankruptcy court authorized the debtors pausing rent payments due under their leases for 60 days, overruling vehement objections from the official committee of unsecured creditors and landlords, as you might expect. The debtors were granted second day relief at a hearing on May 28th, and a final dip hearing is scheduled for June 4th where we expect to see opposition from the UCC, which has filed a blistering objection to final dip approval. Also, a combined hearing on plan confirmation and disclosure statement approval is scheduled for June 25th. Turning to Neiman, which entered Chapter 11 with a restructuring support agreement in hand with over 77%, of holders of extended term loans, over 99% of second lien notes, and over 69% of third lien notes. To equitize debt, backstop a $675 million new money dip facility and a committed $750 million exit financing facility. The company did get interim approval of the dip as well as other requested first day relief at the first hearing in the case. Um, And since then, what we've seen is a battle of the papers between the debtors and other RSA proponents on one side and Marble Ridge Capital UMB Bank as indenture trustee for certain senior notes and the unsecured creditors committee on the other side. The focus, well, much of the focus has been Marble Ridge's motion for an examiner which argued that an impartial third party in the case was needed to investigate claims related to Neiman's controversial transfer of the My Teresa business. Um, Marble Ridge has really been a significant antagonist of the company when it comes to the My Teresa transfers, having litigated for the past two years in multiple courts on this issue. My Teresa is not a debtor in Neiman's Chapter 11 proceedings, by the way. In the examiner motion, Marble Ridge asserted that fraudulent transfer claims against the LBO sponsors, uh, those are Aries and the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, could exceed $1 billion. And let me linger here on Neiman because of recent news from Friday night. The court held a hearing on Marble Ridge's examiner motion and Judge David Jones indicated that he would grant the motion, but the potential examiner's powers and budget would be very limited, not the kind of wide-ranging investigation of the My Teresa-related claims that Marble Ridge had asked for. So in light of those constraints, uh, Judge Jones gave 
Marble Ridge the opportunity to withdraw its motion for an examiner, and that's what Marble Ridge ultimately decided to do, without prejudice to its ability to raise the request again in the future. So for now, no examiner in the case, uh, as Neiman heads toward a second-day hearing this coming Tuesday, June 2nd. J.C. Penney filed for Chapter 11 relief in mid-May in the Southern District of Texas with an RSA supported by about 70% of first lien lenders, which would reduce several billion dollars of debt. The RSA contemplates the debtors establishing what they call a financially sustainable operating company, or new JCP, as well as a real estate investment trust. JCPenney received uh, commitments for $900 million in dip financing from existing first lien lenders, including $450 million of new money. Uh, But there is news on this front. At a status conference on May 28th, Debtors Council said that an ad hoc crossholder group recently submitted an alternative dip proposal, which is now the subject of ongoing good faith negotiations between that group and JCPenney. Debtors Council told the court at the hearing that the company hopes the negotiations will result in a dip provided by the entire group of first lien lenders. At the first day hearing, which was a rare Saturday bankruptcy court hearing, thank you, Sean, for covering that hearing on a weekend, the debtors only requested and were granted consensual access to cash collateral. So at that time, they weren't requesting access to any part of the $900 million dip. The dip hearing is scheduled for this coming week on June 2nd. So we'll watch out for news on revisions to the dip proposal and whether that really coalesces with a broader group of the first lien lenders. J.C. Penney uh, has also asked for three months of rent abatement Uh, from landlords, and four months of reduced rent starting after August. Centric Brands, a New York City-based distributor of licensed and private label kids' wear, accessories, and men and women's apparel, filed petitions in the Southern District of New York. The debtors have entered an RSA contemplating the conversion of more than $700 million of funded debt into equity and emergence as a private company. Substantially all of the company's secured lenders, led by funds managed by Blackstone, Aries, and HPS, have signed the RSA. And certain pre-petition creditors have committed to providing dip financing of up to $435 million. Uh, The Centric Brands debtors obtained the bulk of their requested first-day relief at a hearing that was really largely consensual, uh, where debtors' counsel said uh, that Centric was very far along on the drafting of a plan and disclosure statement. Those plan documents were filed late in the evening on Friday, May 29th. A second-day hearing in the case is scheduled for June 9th. So in this cluster of cases, you see a lot of uh, restructuring support agreements or Uh, transaction support agreements for certain prearranged restructuring plans, um, as well as a case timeline that contemplates second-day hearings. 
coming up pretty soon. Turning to the next constellation of cases, this time oil and gas. Ultra Petroleum filed for Chapter 11 again in the Southern District of Texas and obtained first day relief at a consensual hearing in the middle of May. Uh, the debtors obtained $10 million of interrupted financing at that hearing. Ultra filed the cases with an RSA, plan, and disclosure statement that equitized substantially all pre-petition funded debt. That agreement has the support of holders of 100% of loans under the First Lien RBL credit facility, 85% of loans under the First Lien term loan, and 67% of the Second Lien notes. The bankruptcy court uh, by this point has already approved the debtor's disclosure statement on a conditional basis and set a combined hearing on June 17th on final DS approval and plan confirmation. Judge Marvin Isger did suggest the debtors think hard about the plan's uh, proposed death trap treatment for general unsecured claims. And this is another case where there's plenty to catch up on just from last Friday evening. Ultra has been sparring with Rocky's Express Pipeline LLC over the party's gas transportation contract which is regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. The debtors are now seeking to reject the agreement, and Rockies anticipated this and really acted defensively to block this by uh, filing a petition with FERC related to the, the issue, even before the Chapter 11 cases began. Ultra's move this week was to sue FERC in an adversary complaint asking for a declaratory judgment that the bankruptcy court and not FERC had exclusive jurisdiction over the rejection of this contract. Ultra asked also for a temporary restraining order. Judge Isger heard oral argument on Friday during which Rocky's counsel agreed to withdraw and revise the existing FERC petition to reflect the bankruptcy court's primary jurisdiction. So kind of a consensual resolution to the first chapter of the dispute over who has primary jurisdiction at this point. The court told Rockies to prepare its revised petition by June 8th. Then there's the Hornbeck Offshore Services prepackaged Chapter 11 case filed on May 19th. Hornbeck got interim approval of a $75 million dip facility and the use of $50 million in immediate interim funding to roll up the pre-petition ABL at the first day hearing. Uh, at the hearing, Judge David Jones said that he's generally reluctant to approve a roll-up on the first day of a case, but the fact that a majority of creditors has already approved Hornbeck's prepack plan provided him with sufficient comfort to do it. A second day hearing is set for June 15th, and the combined disclosure statement approval and plan confirmation hearing is set for June 19th. Under the prepack plan, remaining ABL debt would be paid off using uh, those $50 million in interim dip funds, and 21.5% of first lien debt would be converted into 24.6% of reorganized equity, which is subject to dilution by warrant shares, a MIP, and various premiums and fees. 70% of reorganized equity before dilution 
would be distributed through a $100 million rights offering, which would allocate new equity to uh, 52.5% to unsecured note holders, 15.5% to second lien holders. Remaining first lien debt would be rolled into a second lien exit facility. Also, second lien debt would be converted into about 5% of reorganized equity and note holders would receive 0.3%. This is separate from the previously mentioned rights offering. These two groups would also get warrants for an additional 1.5 and 8.5% respectively. General unsecured creditors would be unimpaired. Turning next to Gavilan Resources, the Houston-based ENP formed by Blackstone to partner with Sanchez Energy for the purchase and operation of the Comanche assets in the Eagleford Shale, which filed a freefall Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas on May 15th. As well as the collapse in oil prices, the company cited as a major factor for the bankruptcy, Gavilan's joint operator relationship with Sanchez stating that since the fall of 2018, the debtors have been, quote, entangled in an increasingly unworkable relationship with Sanchez. Gavilan has taken the position that Sanchez defaulted under the party's joint development agreement governing management and operations of the Comanche assets. Uh, We're currently in the midst of a trial in the Sanchez cases on the dispute, So for more on Gavilan and the Comanche assets and that relationship with Sanchez Energy, please tune into coverage of the trial. Judge David Jones has granted all of Gavilan's requested first day relief at the first hearing in the case, including for use of cash collateral. And a second day hearing has been set for June 9th, coming up very soon on the horizon. Another Chapter 11 filer in the Southern District of Texas was Unicorporation, the Tulsa, Oklahoma-based energy company engaged in oil and natural gas exploration and production, contract drilling, and midstream services. Debtors have an RSA in hand with 100% of RBL lenders and over 70% of subordinated note holders as signatories. The RSA would fully equitize the subordinated notes and roll up RBL claims into a portion of exit financing. Also under the RSA, a point on governance, a majority of consenting note holders would have the right to appoint five members of the seven member board of directors, plus one independent director. General unsecured creditors of unit drilling company would be paid in full in cash, while GUX at unit corp and unit petroleum company would receive equity in the respective reorganized entities, both uh, through GUC equity pools. The RSA would also provide equity holders of Unicorp with out-of-the-money warrants in the reorganized Unicorp, exercisable for an aggregate of 12.5% of interests in the reorganized debtor. This was a case where the first day hearing before Judge David Jones was very brief, with the debtors receiving the relief they asked for, including dip financing and cash collateral use. Judge Jones said that he would approve the $8 million roll-up of pre-petition debt upon entry of the interim order. He said that it was appropriate under the circumstances, although he had only, quote, done this once before. 
The second day hearing has been scheduled for June 19th. Now ending with two large complex situations followed by observers for quite a while. Satellite operator Intelsat filed for Chapter 11 protection in the Eastern District of Virginia in mid-May, reporting $11.7 billion in assets and $16.8 billion in liabilities as of April 1st. The debtors said that they filed because they require additional financing to fund the C-band 5G clearing process mandated by the Federal Communications Commission and to service debt and meet operating requirements. According to the debtors, $800 million of the total $1.6 billion required to clear its C-band spectrum must be paid through the second quarter of 2021 prior to receiving the promised reimbursement from the Federal Communications Commission. The first day papers said that the Intelsat debtors have received and begun evaluating potential restructuring transactions by certain of the creditor groups. The debtors also obtained a senior secured multi-draw $1 billion dip term facility from an ad hoc group of holders of approximately half of the secured term loan and secured notes, with about 81% of the dip commitments to be made available to holders of pre-petition secured debt. Um, however, the Intelsat debtors didn't move for approval of the dip right away, saying that they were comfortable that they would have sufficient cash on hand to continue operations in the ordinary course and fund the costs of clearing C-band spectrum for the first 45 days of the case. The first day hearing was largely uncontested, but the numerous organized note holder and lender groups in the case did hint at potentially contentious issues ahead. Uh, these included ownership and encumbrance of the more than five, the $4.5 billion in expected FCC spectrum relocation acceleration payments. Cyrus Capital in particular said that ownership of the acceleration payments by a particular debtor, such as Intelsat Jackson or one of its affiliates, and the attachment of pre-petition secured lenders' liens to that payment could be hotly contested. With debtors' counsel responding that the proposed cash collateral order really uh, reserved everybody's rights with respect to those C-band payments. Going on to more recent news on Intelsat, it announced on May 26th that it's opted into the accelerated C-band clearing plan and filed a written commitment with the FCC. Meanwhile, there's been plenty of news about groups organizing in the case and retaining advisors. For example, Reorg reported this past week that certain Intelsat Connect Finance, Envision, and Luxembourg note holders have organized with Paul Weiss. This comes after comments by Paul Weiss at that first day hearing um, about potential avoidance actions relating to quote-unquote massive intercompany transactions. The group is also working with Ducera Partners as financial advisor. Also, the seven-member UCC has hired Millbank, Mill, Millbank as counsel, and the independent directors at Intelsat Jackson Holdings is working with Quinn Emanuel and Alex Partners. Lastly, the car rental company Hertz and its recent Chapter 11 filing has been discussed earlier in the podcast, 
but we'll keep an eye on new developments before the debtors return to court for the June 25th second day hearing. Those are the highlights for most of the large Chapter 11 cases covered by our team at America's Core Credit, but we'll end with a note that the month isn't quite over yet. Taking a look at the calendar today as we record on Saturday, there's a forbearance expiration for Fieldwood Energy on May 31st. The, the independent ENP company in the Gulf of Mexico has been operating under forbearance agreements with lenders after missing interest payments due on April 30th. So to be continued. New York, back to you. Thank you. And thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg site media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your friend, your families are healthy and safe.